Christ Forming the Church is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his second message, Identifying Us. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, and it reads as follows. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now, let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for his second message entitled, Identifying Us, as he continues in his series, Christ Forming the Church. God, fill all your church with your Holy Spirit. Turn to the second chapter of Acts, and we will continue what we began last week. I know that what I'm teaching you nowadays is filled with content, and, and there, much, there, there may be too much content for you to assimilate, but it will have its cumulative effect. I'm asking you to work with me to go deep, deeper than you've ever been in Scripture, so that you might be more mature and more effective than you've ever been in your walk. We talked last week about when the Holy Spirit had come to the church. The Holy Spirit came during a time when all of the people were praying in one accord. We remember that that does not mean that everyone was praying as an individual. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, fix my life. If that was the prayer of those 120, there were really 120 prayers in that room, not one prayer. There were really 120 accords, not one accord. No, it must have been something, oh God, fill us all. For your sake, fill all your church. And why were they doing this? They were doing this to be effective witnesses. Remember what Jesus had said to them, you will be filled with power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That's what they were praying for. God, make us effective witnesses. Now, after that glorious outpouring on all the church, after they had prayed for each other as much as they had prayed for themselves, God created an effect that created a forum for Peter to stand up. Now, this is the same Peter who had always been tremendously self-confident, but in the confident, but in the clutch, he'd chickened out. In the clutch, he had been backed down by his own cowardice. And remember, I want you to remember this, if I don't say it again. Everyone who tries to build confidence in themselves will chicken out when the clutch comes. You know why? Because I don't care how much confidence you have in yourself, I don't, I don't care how many courses you've taken in self-esteem. When you feel like you're out there all alone, disconnected, you're going to back down. I want you to see a different Simon Peter this day. 
totally different. And I want you to see it in connection with the fact that he is no longer out there all alone. He's no longer just Simon Peter, whose job it is to defend Christ. No, now he is a part of 120 people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's who he speaks for. Look at this, verse 13. But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven. In Greek, that can mean being put forth from the eleven. In other words, Peter, all of us can talk, but you need to talk. Raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. I love this. He's talking to the entire city who's come out to see what in the world the noise was. I love how he's formerly backed down from a little slave girl and now he's talking to an entire city. And look what he says. In the entire city, you know in all Jerusalem there were non-believers. He's talking to both believers and non-believers. Look at what he says. And all you who live, uh, live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. In other words, he, he looks, it's sitting him safe from this guy. He's looking and said, listen to me. This is what I'm going to tell you right now. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he begins to repeat Scripture, which doesn't make sense to them, but he's planting Scripture. Not everyone knows who Joel was or what he prophesied, but he's planting Scripture here. Look what he says. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. In other words... I'm telling you all this because y'all are going to see it. You don't need to be believers to see this. There's going to be something happening in the earth that is so plain you're all going to face this. Why? Why is it God going to do it that plainly? Well, it says in the last uh, verse, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he switches audiences. I'm going to go into this one next week. But he doesn't speak to the whole city anymore. He speaks to men of Israel, listen to these words, so that they can overhear what he's about to say to believers. Now, let me address something this morning that not many of us like to face, not many of us like to hear, because it makes us very uncomfortable. How do you speak about the things of God to non-believers? How do you speak to people who are outside that family of faith. Unless you are gifted either in the area of evangelism or in the area of prophecy, you don't like to get in people's faces and present the gospel. It's not a comfortable thing for you. And many of you, I suspect, carry around this huge guilt load because you don't do more witnessing. You know, I should just go out and just start telling people about Jesus. Well, let me give you a pattern this morning that will help you immensely in this, all right? Both as far as your guilt goes and as far as your reticence goes. 
Because there is a reason that more people don't witness for Christ verbally. And that is because they feel like when they do it, they're all alone. Like Peter felt that he was all alone, remember? And so they chicken out like Peter chickened out. But Peter became a different man this day. What was the reason for that? And what is available for us that he had found? Look with me. First of all, it says this. But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. One of the reasons that we don't want to tell people about Jesus, or we're reticent to do so, is because that's a lot of the mood that's in the world. There's a mocking in the world. It's also the very occasion we have for witnessing. And let me tell you why. First of all, the reason there's mocking is because God's moving. Whenever God's moving, they'll be mocking. It's, been, it's always been that way. Um, um, you, you know, Ishmael mocked Isaac. The soldiers mocked Jesus. Festus mocked Paul. There is a principle in Scripture. It's listed, by the way, in, uh, in Galatians 4.29. And the principle is this. It says in 4.29, uh, At that time, he who was born of, according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. There's the principle. The flesh always persecutes the Spirit. So therefore, when people see Christians who are active, now they're not gonna, you're not going to arouse anybody's ire with a, with a, you know, a Christian who just is kind of, you know, floating along and, and not wanting to disturb anybody and kind of keep this little private religious thing. See? That's not going to raise anybody, anybody's ire. But when there are Christians who mean what they say and live what they say, there's always going to be persecution. There's always going to be, and it's usually going to come in the form of mocking. And so many times, you're going to have this, you're going to have the opportunity to stand up for Christ and for your brother and sister Christians by defending them against that mocking. You will find in the workplace people who say, I can't stand these egg-headed Christians who go out and they're so judgmental and they think they know what's right for everybody and they're so holier than thou and they this and this and this and this and this. See? Now you're going to be standing there going, I wonder if I should say something. i got to work with this guy. I don't know... I don't know if I do more damage than good. And you're fighting with yourself, you see? I want to say, yes, you should say something. You need to identify yourself at that place as one of those Christians. You need to be able to say, you know, not so fast here. Those are my folks. Those are my folks. And you need to be able to defend them. You may not even agree with everything they're doing. I don't agree with what every Christian does, you know? And I would never do what every Christian does. But that's my family, you see. And so, when Peter got up and said, wait a minute, these guys aren't drunk, like you think they are, what he was doing was defending the family. And we need to do the same thing. We need to defend fellow Christians. We need to stand up for them. You know why? Because we're on that team. They're our teammates. So when people say, you know, Christians are so... You say, well, you know, I can see how you'd see that. But, but let me tell you something. I'm a Christian. And, and I know you may feel that way, but, but let me tell you why they're doing what they're doing. 
and then roll out the rationale for what they're doing so that people can have a reasonable idea of what's going on. People need that. They deserve that. So that day, Peter had the courage to step forward and to defend his brother and sister Christians. Now, why? Why did he have that kind of strength when he didn't have it before? Well, he had just seen the Holy Spirit poured out on all the church. And Peter was no longer acting as Simon Peter, strongest one of God. You remember that self-confidence he had. Oh, God, uh, Jesus, if all of these people forsake you, I won't. You know? He had tremendous self-confidence. He had, he had taken this, you are, you have as many rights as anybody else, of course, you know? He had taken this, you know, you're, you're, Peter, you're the greatest in the world. He'd listened to motivational tapes. He'd, you know, he'd gone, he'd taken all these self-esteem courses. Oh, you're valuable, you know? He had all of this confidence. But as long as he was standing alone, he would back down. Now there was a difference. Now when he was put forth, he stood forth as one of the eleven. Now he was an inextricable part of the team. Now when you go out and you have this opening to witness, by the way, I'm going to say about, something about that in just a minute, because most of us, never mind. But I'll get to that in just a minute. When you have this opening, I keep switching this, this message around. Don't forget your outlines today. That's not, we're not going to go by the outline. <laughs> I, I just keep going different on this. So we'll just kind of play with this. We're kind of needing it. Um, yeah, massaging this, you know, it'll come out a little bit different for everybody because there's a different group here and you probably need a different message, I hope. <laughs> Where was I? I got lost. <laughs> when you're out there, you're a part of a team. Most people, when they begin to speak for Christ, have an immediate check that's from the adversary. And this is what the adversary says. The adversary says, you can't speak up for Christ. In the first, first place, your life isn't perfect. In the second place, you don't know Scripture that well. You start speaking up for Christ, you're going to make a fool of yourself and damage the cause of Christ. That's from the adversary. Now, if you were all alone in standing up for Christ, you might consider that. But you're not all alone in standing up for Christ. You're a part of a team. You just happen to be out there for the flip of the coin. When I was in, when I was in high school... I was um, uh, one of the captains of the football team. And every game, you know, I'd go out. I think they elected me captain just to give the other team overconfidence. <laughs> I, I think they did. Because when I went out, I was just this little guy in all these pads that went out there. And I always shook hands up like this there, but, you know. And I know it was a psych job to make the other team go back and go, man, we can kill these guys. You should have seen this little guy out there. But I always went out there, you know. And I was thinking... You know, if I had to play this game all by myself, I wouldn't even come out. These guys are huge. But I wasn't there to play the game by myself. I was part of the 11. I stood up for the 11. That's all I was doing. I was out there for the flip of the coin. The game was to follow. And you've got to realize that when you speak a word for Christ, the game's to follow here. You don't win it. You know, you're out there for the ceremony. You're saying, wait a minute. You know, let me explain to you something about what's going on here. That's just the beginning of the game. That's just the beginning of what God's doing. You don't have to stand out there and win that thing by yourself. You've got to understand you're a representative of the team that God has formed, of the covenant community, of the people of God. And so when you go out, that's what you're doing. And you've also got to understand 
That if you're put in that position, God has arranged for that. I see people all the time going through this guilt. Well, I ought to just go out in the neighborhood and knock on doors. Well, if God leads you to do that, then that's exactly what you ought to do. But if God doesn't lead you to do that, let me give you even a better arrangement for how you're wired. Do you remember how Peter got his for him? He didn't go out and start knocking on doors, did he? No. They were praying this prayer. God... Give us the power and the opportunity to be witnesses. Because Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That's what they were praying for. And they were praying it all together. Oh, God, give us your Holy Spirit so that we can witness. Now, when God did it, he did it in a way that so obviously pulled all the town together. Peter didn't send a mailer to the town, you know, coded in zip code saying, oh, come to a meeting of the revival at 2 o'clock this afternoon. God had opened this opening for him that was so big, you could have driven a Mack truck through it. And so it was obvious to Peter that he needed to say something. Now, what was Peter doing? He was, he was praying for an opening. What should you do? Pray for an opening. If God's laid something in your heart, say, God... I don't want this to come out of my flesh. I don't want it to come because I feel guilty or because I'm scared for their salvation or because I'm doing this or because I've got any all these reasons or I want to manipulate them to be like me or, you know, that, 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 No. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit is to give you a forum so that He can use you to confront someone on their need for Christ. It's not up to you. And so therefore, here's what you need to pray. Like Peter and the, and the disciples prayed. God, give us an opening. Give us a forum here. Like I said, many times, that forum will be somebody speaking up and saying, oh, those idiots, you know. And you have an opening there. You know, you have something to say. Sometimes people will come, I mean, out of the blue and say, you know, I am so, life, my life is so empty and so frustrating. Well... I think I know a book that would help. You know? Uh, there are some people who will just, I mean, flat out, you pray for an opening, you know, and God just does a miraculous thing, and they're there the next day, please explain Christ to me. You know, I mean, it's, I've, I've heard of that, you know. But, but what you need to do is begin to pray for an opening, and then when God provides it, follow up. Now, what, did, what, what was Peter doing that day? He was referring them... Not to himself or even to the team, but he was referring to them to what God was doing in history. And the first thing Peter did was acquaint them with Scripture, even though they didn't know Scripture. That's another thing. If you, if you study Scripture, God will bring that to your mind at the most appropriate places. And you can just plant that Scripture and let the Scripture do its work. I'll get to that in just a minute, though. But here's Peter. He's doing this, he's doing this thing, and he says... This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, what was he saying there? He was saying, this is not a bunch of people who are in a religious mood. He was saying this. This is an act of history that has been predicted that everyone can see. It's an objective fact. And it is absolutely necessary for all of us to understand what's going on here. So therefore, Peter was saying... In essence, now watch this, this is very important. You don't have to depend on my personal testimony for this. I want you to understand that what God has done for us, He's done for us all. And I want you to understand that if 
Christ is not an objective fact who, who has died for us all, then we haven't got anything going for us. You know what that takes away? That takes away all this stuff like, well, you got your religion and I got my religion. You know what? Peter said, this is a fact of history. This is what God has done in history that affects us all. And so that's the way I witness to you. I don't witness to you so that you can become like me or so that you can have the same religious opinion that I have. I witness to you on the facts. Now, let me just say this. I see all kinds of people getting more and more deconstructed into this mentality of whatever means something to you makes it real. I see a lot of people building theology around this embrace the light stuff. You know, everybody, this is, by the way, this is uh, an old heresy, this battle between light and darkness and all this kind of stuff called Gnosticism. But, and, and I'm not trying to, to, to denigrate anybody's uh, uh, near-death experience. I've had a near-death experience. But I would not build a theology on it. You know, you don't build a theology on what your personal experience has been. You use that for encouragement of yourself. But if we don't build our theology on what is objective fact, we don't have a theology. It's either right or it's wrong. If we don't base our lives on what God has done for us, instead of what our perception of what the religious world is, then we haven't got anything but a feeling and an opinion. And so, Peter that day was saying, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. God has just fulfilled history. Therefore, he is objective. He is trustworthy. You see? It's, it's important to, to note that there are three things when you're explaining something. And I'll go into these in a little bit more detail next week. Three things to, important to explain somebody when you're explaining Christ. Number one, you need to explain the facts. In Latin, that's notitia, the data. You need to explain to them what God has done objectively for everybody. Doesn't depend on your opinion. He's done it. You need to lay out the facts. And, and believe me, Peter was talking to a heathen society, so he began to lay the foundation of Scripture in them. And, and he realized they probably wouldn't understand it right away, but nonetheless, he was going to lay out the facts for them so that they could at least have the facts available to them. Could I say to you that this society is just as pagan as that society was? They know just as little about Christianity as that society did. Everybody thinks they live in a Christian society here. Well, we live in a post-Christian society. In the 18th century, when the kids were being taught out of school books that had Scripture in them and so on and so forth, they knew something of Christ. People don't know anything of Christ today. Don't ever assume people know who Jesus Christ is. I was talking with somebody last night. He was, he was uh, uh, talking to a student of his who's exploring all of these different religions and trying to choose one for herself. And, he, and, she's, and her words were, I, I'll, I'll, I'll look at any, Christi, uh, any, any religion except Christianity. He said, why won't you look at Christianity? She said, because I would never become a part of a religion where people have to save themselves. He looked at her and he said, that's the opposite of the message of Christianity. None of us save ourselves. None of us are good enough. We can only accept the grace of God by faith and only are saved on the basis of what He's done. But here's this girl who thought she knew all about Christianity had it totally backwards. 
So therefore, people need to have accurate information. And when 1 Peter 13, or 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give a defense of the account of hope for that is within you. That defense, that, that, that word, means, uh, 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 it's a, it's, in Greek it's uh, apologian. It's, it's the word from which we get apologetics. It's a, it's a reasoned explanation. Be ready to explain to people what you believe and why you believe it. Okay, that's the first thing. That's notation. The second thing is a census. They need, that's the Latin word, yes, or A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. It means to intellectually assent. They need to believe that that's, that's true. Okay, I, I can accept that intellectually. That makes sense to me. Um, um, I can see that that is probably true on an objective scale. All right, that's the second step. But don't think the work's done when they've reached that point. You know why? Because the Bible says demons in hell believe it. There are demons in hell that, that know that God is God and Jesus is His Son and Jesus died for everybody that know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. They believe all of it intellectually. But they're still demons and they're still in hell. What is that third step that is so important? What is that third step that would make a tremendous difference to the to the 90% of the United States that says, Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus was God's Son. Oh, yeah, I believe He died for everybody. Oh, yeah, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah, I believe all that. But they still walk spiritually empty and dead in their own lives. What is that third step? The third step is fiducia. We get the word fiduciary from it, meaning trust. The third step is to, is to take a personal step of faith where you entrust your life to what God has done. And you say, God, it doesn't depend on me. It depends totally on you. And I know that. And I lay my life in your hands. You do with it whatever you want. Now that is where Peter was heading when he started to plant Scripture. And we'll get to more of that later. But I want to show you something. I want to show you why he did it. He did it because he knew that people needed to hear it. Because people are sadly mistaken when it comes to an evaluation of their own spiritual life. People believe they have what they don't have. This was a religious country. It was a religious civilization. Everybody had their gods. And they thought they had all they needed, but they didn't have all they need. You know, there is a part of Scripture... Even in churches, this is true. In Revelation, Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea and says, you know, you think you're wealthy and you think you got everything going for you. He said, you don't know that you're poor and blind and naked and devastated. You don't know that because you think you got everything going for you. I guarantee you, there were people in this society, there are people in your life that don't think they need Christ. They got, they, they've got a good job. They like to play golf. Their house payments are being made. They may have gone through a couple of families, but they're happy in their relationship now and so on and so forth. And, you know, life's going good. Why would I want to mess it up with Christ? They have no idea until they hear what the offer is of what else they could possibly have. You know, I, I heard a story this week on the radio uh, uh, about... I, I listen to 90.7 for their little news snippets. You know, I like their, their informational stuff, public radio. And, and it, it talked about the inventor of Bic pens. The guy was name, the guy's name was Bic, the last name B-I-C-H. They dropped the H. And uh, 
talked about how he had just had a windfall uh, uh, coming along at the right time in history for a country that was tired of trying to take care of all the details and just needed a disposable pen, you know? Needed something they could just use and throw away, you know? And so they make 15 million of these things a day. That's how many big pens we go through. And just thought about, you know, that was just... But they had a little tag on the end of this story that I thought was so curious. They said this. They said, in the poorest countries in the world, it is a mark of prestige to own a Bic pen. He said he was talking to a guy in, in Africa who was going through the village, had a shirt on, had his, his chest stuck out like this. He stopped and he was asking about his life and he said, how is your life going? He says, oh, very well. I'm doing very well. You notice I own my very own Bic pen. I'm thinking to myself, what a marvelous analogy for the spirituality of the United States. You know, we think we're doing so well, we don't have a clue about what God could bless us with, you know. And there are people who think, well, I've got a, I had a warm feeling once, or I had a, a nice religious experience once, and so it's disposable, you know. That goes away. You know, that wastes away, that's nothing. God has more than that for us. And that's why we need to present this gospel. And, and yes, the gospel will be offensive. It was offensive to me the first time I heard I wasn't good enough like I was. I was devastated. What do you mean? You know? What do you mean I'm a sinner? Don't be calling me a sinner. I knew it in my head. I knew the horrible habits I had in my life. I knew that I was absolutely powerless to change them. I knew all of that. But the first time somebody told me, really crushed me. And when God poured out His Spirit on my flesh, it knocked me down. I mean, I, I, I have one of my favorite stories. I love this story. It's because a little guy is the hero. It's about, it's about the Irish lightweight boxing champion. This is a true story. Last century, he came over to do exhibitions in the United States. Okay, Now, nobody knew who he was. You know, they didn't have big media blitzes and all of that kind of stuff, but he traveled from town to town setting up exhibition matches and so on and so forth. And so he went into this town in the Old West, uh, just had gotten there, and, and first thing he did was go into a saloon for a drink and, you know, goes up to the bar. He comes about this, you know, far in the bar and, and uh, ordered a, a shot of Irish whiskey and, and sitting there nursing that thing and, the town bully walks in. Now, you know the mentality of a bully. Bully never goes to somebody his own size. Bully always tries to make as much personal profit off the least possible resistance. That's the mentality of a bully. So he looks the thing over and he sees this little guy at the bar. Well, he goes over to this little guy at the bar. Just, and he hears his talking funny. Talks funny. So he starts making fun of him. The Irishman looks up and says... Please, let me alone. Just keeps nursing that little drink. See? Well, that guy gets more and more abusive and more and more heated. Starts pushing this little guy. The Irishman looks up and says, I'm telling you. <laughs> let me alone. Well, finally, the bully just wheels this guy around. And the Irishman goes like this. And the last thing the bully remembers <laughs> is cocking his fist. And then the first thing he recalls is looking up from the floor into the face of that Irishman that now stood above him. And he remembers his jaw hurting as he asked the question, 
Who are you? The Irishman gave the classic answer. I'm the man you thought you were when you walked in here. (laughs) You know, it's bad news to, to find out you're not the man you thought you were when you were walking around. That's what the Holy Spirit does to you. He lets you know. Why? So that you can become that person. And that's what Peter was doing that day for them. And that's what we do every time we open our mouth to defend the gospel or to explain the gospel or to stand with our Christian brothers and sisters. You don't ever have to do it alone. You don't have to have a life that's perfect. You don't have to know everything that's in the Bible. Just saying, I identify with those in Christ. Just saying, I'm a Christian. That's what I believe. And if you want... I'll help explain the gospel so that you know why I believe what I believe. That will do everything. Let me tell you one more story, and then we'll go to this central symbol that links us with Christians all down through the ages. As a matter of fact, we're going to to listen to a a couple of classical uh, Christian pieces this morning, one by uh, Mozart and one by Beethoven that that are just wonderful. We, We wanted to do that because... Sometimes we identify more broadly if we remember that we come from historic Christianity. But let me tell you this story. It is so important to understand that fulfillment to a Christian is different than fulfillment to a non-Christian. When a non-Christian talks about fulfillment, they usually talk about it in connection with their own lives. I want to be fulfilled in my life. When a Christian talks about fulfillment, he or she usually talks about it in terms of history. I want to fulfill my place in God's plan. When God gives you an opening to say a word for Christ, you are fulfilling your place in history by sharing with that person what you believe. And you may never know What a difference that made to their life because you see no immediate results. You may not see anything as far as just your your talking about Christ. You may not see any result, but I want to guarantee you the results are there. And sometimes you find out about them in dramatic ways. Yesterday we had a, a wonderful funeral here. These flowers are from there. Jimmy Ellington was, was uh, memorialized here yesterday. Now, not many of you knew him personally, but some of you will know when I say that there were a, was a news piece at the beginning of the week about a man who had drowned in Lake Fairview. And you saw on the, the news clip this boat going around and they couldn't figure out what had happened to the man and so on and so forth. What you don't know is the Paul Harvey rest of the story. The day before that man drowned, he came to Northam, first time in church. And he sat there, and God got a hold of his life. His brother said, I looked over at this guy, and there were just tears welling up in his eyes. He said, at the end of that service, he went out and bought tapes. He was just going to hand them out. His daughter told me that 
When he got home that day, he just took his daughter in his arms and he said, I just loved that. I'm going to go to church with you every Sunday. 24 hours later, he was dead. Isn't God's timing wonderful? Now, let me ask you this question. Does it really make any difference if somebody lives 24 hours after they've been gotten hold of by God or 24 years or 48 years? You know, when we look back here, it's all going to be a snap anyhow. It's all just a, just a moment of time. What is important was that the Holy Spirit arranged for this person to hear the gospel. And there was a spoken gospel when there was an opening. I want to say he does the same thing in your lives. When there's an opening, that is an absolutely valuable time for that person to hear it. And you're the person that the Holy Spirit has sent. You are the fulfillment of history. Pray with me. God, as we are about to partake of this wonderful sacrament, this image of how you paid the price for our salvation so that we could go to where you are, that you would come again for us. God, help us to look inside ourselves, to make sure that what we have there is of you. Father, if there's anybody in this sanctuary today that has been depending on just their intellectual assent for Christ, that has never fully placed their trust in you, and said to you, Oh God, if anything happens to me spiritually, it's going to be because of what you've done, not what I do. If there are people here who who believed that they were Christians, but only because it was their own opinion and it mattered to them, not because it was objective fact. But today, they have heard that the solid ground is what you have done for us all, not what we felt or what, what we believed in our mind. God, let them today make that full, complete step to say, God, I rest my salvation on the fact of Jesus' forgiveness for all mankind and on the fact that you've called me to trust in you. And Father, as we come to this table, we pray that you will bless this sacrament and unite us with Christians down through the ages and all over this world. Because as the Holy Spirit has come, we are no longer individuals, but one in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Would the communion servers in the choir please come forward? And while they're coming forward, let me request of you that you would receive the elements that are being distributed and hold them. And I'm going to ask you to hold them for a very long time this today. Not only hold them until everybody has received, but hold them until you have heard these words of Mozart sung to you. It is a motet that will allow you
to consider the sacrifice of Christ before we all take the elements together. To concentrate on you and fill all your church with the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.